Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Destination CMO. I'm so excited. Our guest today is Khaled Al-Khatib. He's the Chief Marketing Officer at Stack Overflow. And this is a website that I have used, I mean, since the beginning of like trying to learn everything from HTML to JavaScript and like sharpening my tool set. And so I'm really excited to have him on. He's responsible for marketing, communication, advertising initiatives for the company. Throughout his career, he's transformed awareness and perception of global brands for companies that include General Electric, Goldman Sachs, TED, as in TED the TED Talks, and Xerox. He began his career working in communications for Teach for America, which is an organization that is dear to my heart. My college roommate actually went on to be a TFA teacher. And that's really what fostered his lifelong passion for social impact. Kelly, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. When you take a look at your background, I mean, you've done everything from consumer facing things to I'm not even sure whether to consider Stack Overflow B2B or b 2 developer, but it's like I said, a site that I have often frequented because it's on the top of the search result for so many searches that I end up doing. Where across the spectrum, how have you honed in to finding your marketing sweet spot of the types of products, the type of companies, the types of industries that you're passionate about? To a marketer, you would really call it B2B to C or B2B to D, D being developers. But I think more colloquially, we call it like community marketing. And so starting my career at Teach for America, we, of course, had the thousands of students that were our constituents. And then we had parents, other teachers, children, government officials. Then when I went over to the agency side, like you said, I worked with TED, where we had, of course, the billions of people who were watching TED Talks, but also the thousands of folks who were attending the conference and marketing to them as well. And then I worked for a company called GLG, where we had a bench of about a million experts in addition to the client base that we served. And so today at Stack Overflow, we have the website, the public platform, stackoverflow.com, that's visited by literally tens of millions of people every month. And then we have the 15,000 or so organizations that use our paid products, both advertising products and then our private version of Stack Overflow called Stack Overflow for Teams, a knowledge management and productivity SaaS platform. So again, it's a long-winded response, but I think community marketing and then building a brand that both resonates with an individual and a business is something that I've really carved out a niche around. And community marketing, not a new concept, but what is new is that when you take a look at how marketing has evolved over the past decade, over the past two decades, you know, marketing like old school marketing was like somebody with a bullhorn shouting a message out to the masses. Like when you think about the power of community marketing, like what are the brands that you think have done that well? And how has that changed from this one to many, one to mass communication channel? Yeah, so we talk about community being our competitive moat all the time. I mean, community is foundational to everything that we do. Without our public platform and without our community, we don't have paid products. And not only are the users of our public platform our customers, 
but they also give us customer feedback in relatively real time. And they're super honest because they feel very bought in. And so I think you can look at B2B brands that have done it well, and you can look at B2C brands and everyone's really, to your point, leaned into this. So like even Uber, for example, Uber and Lyft, like they've tried to build a community of people who prefer their product over the other by gamifying the app process, by cascading rating information, by over-communicating, by soliciting feedback, entering new cities, sending you ride reports. I think the airlines have seen an opening in doing this. It used to be that they would just sort of optimize for business travelers with their loyalty programs. And now, whether it's through viral marketing or social media, everyone sort of sees the community as being a real lever in moving the needle and generating more revenue, but also pushing the product forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the product for Stack Overflow couldn't happen without the community, but also couldn't happen without trust of other community members. And I think where you take a look at like true community and something that's like really powerful and like the examples of doing it the digital way is like, they're just like on Wikipedia. I mean, there are individuals who dedicate their time unpaid to the betterment of the community. And so when I think of community, that's where I think of like organic leadership and individuals who are volunteering time to be able to improve the quality of the community that they're in versus you see other companies where when they think of community, they're literally thinking of like comments on their Instagram post and people commenting on those individual posts and calling that a community. Yep, that's right. I think one of the distinctive points about communities such as Stack Overflow is the folks who are involved feel a sense of ownership over what they've built over time. And so Stack Overflow has existed since 2008. And many of our community members, especially the most engaged, have been contributing since then. And I think that Reddit, Wikipedia, and there are a number of others, but what these folks will tell you is not only do they feel a sense of ownership about over the community and the direction in which it heads. But the reason that they've done that, that they've contributed so much over time is because they've learned so much through teaching. They've made themselves better coders in our case. They made themselves better mentors. They've built greater networks. And that's something that we've really leaned into because we've evolved our community and our public platform. And as we've built our products, how can we ensure that the benefits that our most engaged community members feel are accessible to anyone? Let's talk a little bit about the role of the modern marketing leader. How CMOs need to be highly cross-functional. I mean, you touch a lot of the significant challenges that companies face today. And I mean, how do you think CMOs should be able to think about like recognizing their bias and listening to other people on the team, whether that team is within their growth marketing revenue team or potentially like on the broader team across the organization? Yeah, I think that we're operating in an environment in which there's so much going on and the mandate for marketing leaders is so broad that no one can know everything. And so many years ago, when I was working for an agency under the umbrella of WPP, I was doing thought leadership for a number of executives and I was, I don't know, 27, 28, 29 years old. And so it was really lucky because I was a sponge soaking up as much as I could get. And I remember one of the pieces that I wrote for Beth Comstock, who was CMO of G at the time was a piece of career advice that she wished she had known her whole career. And that was always hire the person who's smarter than you. And that's an approach that I've certainly tried to carry with me throughout my career. And that is sort of in pursuit or in recognition of the fact that I don't know everything. I don't even know that much about marketing operations. There's so much that I need to know and learn about demand generation, product marketing, et cetera. And I think that you should always hire the person who has a deep 
level of expertise, who has their finger on the pulse of the functional area in which they're managing, but more than anything is super passionate about it. I mean, my marketing operations leader, for example, gets like super fired up about the evolution of Marketo is in a Marketo like leadership group that she hosts in Portland. So she comes to me when she needs to unlock budget for a new initiative, when something is broken. And that level of expertise on the team and the sort of two-way trust that I have with those leaders is so paramount to the success of not only me and my role, but everything our team does. I think that's actually like one of the growing moments for marketing leaders, because there's a shift in your career earlier in your marketing career where like being good at your job is having the answer. It's having the answer and like being really tactically sharp. And there's a stage that you grow where it becomes really uncomfortable if you don't know the answer and moving past the point where you understand that like success is not you being the best at everything and success is not you having the deep expertise, but success is actually building the diverse team and surrounding yourself with people around the table, the virtual table in some instances that bring those insights, but they are the ones that are going to the conferences that are keeping up with all of the different communities for all the vendors, talking to other companies that are also using those tools as well. But that's definitely like an uncomfortable thing, like the first time that it happens. And like, I know for me, like the first time where I realized like, oh yeah, like millennials are not the age group anymore was with Be Real. The Be Real is the first social media app that I can solidly say I'm not on. I am. And, you know, I did it for a little while just to see what it was all about. And then I have many cousins. My parents have a lot of siblings and my like 20 something and late teen cousins all made fun of me. And so I had to leave. I had to leave. <laughs> yeah, you got kicked <laughs> off of Be Real. <laughs> it's like all I do is work and watch TV and eat and go to the gym. And I look ridiculous and all of these. So. Yeah. so for anybody who's listening, who's an old fart like the two of us, Be Real is this new app where it's all about authenticity and once a day you get a notification to post exactly what you're doing but it turns on your front camera and your back camera and you do a snapshot and the idea is it's not like this curated vision of your life that sometimes is you know present on Instagram and other and others but if you live on Instagram like I do and you go into Instagram stories it only takes a certain matter of time before meta just copies be real and adds it in which actually happened last week. So the Be Real front and back camera is now inside Instagram stories. I think that's like a really great insight in terms of team building and surrounding yourself with smarter individuals than yourself. Let's talk a little bit about AI. When you take a look at advances in technology, there was this wave of time where the metaverse was the hot thing. We went through the crypto blockchain NFT phase. And for me, it was hard to get excited about the metaverse as like a really like practical thing that I was going to use in my life. But man, generative AI, it's here, it's out of the box. And like, there's no putting it back in the box. As you take a look at those advances, what do you think are the things that marketers should keep an eye on in terms of automating tasks? And what are the areas that like you shouldn't be playing with AI in your marketing work today? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I agree that the AI, generative AI and ML represents like a huge paradigm shift in how we work. I think the metaverse and Web3 are not good sort of comps because to your point, application was sort of unclear. It was lumpy based on which industry you were in. To me, like the closest parallel that we have as someone who's been working like less than 20 years, there were 
lots of advances over the past 50 or so. But to me, it's like when we started to realize that social media could be used for marketing purposes and for B2B marketing as well. And that... It feels like it was a long time ago. It was like 10, 15 years ago, but it really transformed my career. And so as someone who was fairly young at the time and working at marketing and marketing, a lot of senior folks at the companies at which I was working said like, hey, I don't understand this. What is Twitter? Or like, how could Facebook possibly be used to reach a customer or a prospect? And they were relying on me to do that. And so I think in the very early days of generative AI, it's important that marketers educate themselves on what the practical use cases are. And so I think that we don't know what we don't know. Like I want to acknowledge that we're very early days, this sort of frenzy that we're in, we're sub a year into it. But I think that there are tremendous productivity gains to be made. I think that there are all sorts of components of marketing that are quite redundant. So for a go-to-market launch, for example, there are like 10 variations of social media posts that we'll do, or we'll A-B test three CTAs on a website and 10 headlines on a blog post. And all of that can be automated through generative AI. And I think as it gets more sophisticated, it can do a better job ingesting data and understanding sentiment and responses to things. I think some social media companies and the Hootsuites of the world are starting to pick up on this. But I think that a few things that we have to be cautious of is everything that you read about generative AI today is where it fails and where it's weakest is when it comes to replicating the human right, voice and writing. And so I think that marketers are marketers for a reason. They do a good job in when they're good, they're good at capturing authenticity, more emotive writing, understanding the customer inside and out. And we have to gut check everything that's being generated by AI for the time being. And then the other is just being super cautious with data or proprietary customer information. I think every marketer has a story over the last few months of like a salesperson who ran something through ChatGPT or a different generative AI platform, and then put something in front of the customer, whether it was an email or a deck or something else. And they probably shouldn't have done that. And the consequences of that can be like fairly benign or they can be pretty catastrophic. So I think every company and every marketing leader needs to ensure that there are guardrails in place for their team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like I think that going forward in hiring, I actually think that prompt writing ends up being a skill just like being able to use Excel or being able to use Google Sheets or being able to use Marketo, that being really good at writing prompts just ends up being a skill that across all roles is beneficial. At the same time, I think understanding like where your company sits, how regulated your industry is, how severe the consequences of getting it wrong are all really important things to be able to understand as companies look at, at how to implement. In a healthcare industry where the stakes are high, might not be the time. But one area, when you take a look like behind the scenes, of what are the tasks and like the repetitive things that need to get done. I love the example that you gave in terms of like the 10 blog post titles, because it takes time to be able to come up with 10 blog post titles, but it's also really hard to make 10 that are different enough. And like, that's something that can happen fast. The other one that I think is really creative is being able to use it to be able to understand your target audience better. So if you open up chat GPT and you run something like, what are the top 10 frustrations of new software developers who are learning how to code? You can aggregate kind of insights where as a marketer, a lot of the success is being able to understand others. And sometimes it's an area that you lived and breathed if you're writing for a tool that might be used by marketers. 
But if it's a persona or in a new industry that you're not familiar with, that's a great way to be able to get initial insights, but nothing's going to replace like actually talking to people, talking to your customers. But this is a really great way to get a start. I agree. I think that it'll probably hurt or hinder lazy marketers more than anything, but good marketers who use the tools responsibly, I think will be tremendously more productive and more effective as well. Like even understanding a customer or prospect by combing, having a generative AI comb their earnings report to understand what the core pain points are for a bank. That's a big prospect of yours. Like those are all incredible use cases that previously took hours upon hours of time. 100%. I kind of think of like generative AI, at least in the 3.5 or the 4.0 model, as almost like your really fast intern. When you think about like the type of research, the type of work that you often do in an internship, this ends up being a really smart intern. But is the intern going to be able to replace the senior copywriter who's got 10 years of experience within a specific industry? Not necessarily. I think you hit another point earlier, like the writing is a solid... B minus to B writing. It's consistently kind of a B, but it doesn't have that like emotional storytelling. Ironically, it can write poetry, but it doesn't hit the same way as the piece that is written by a human, at least not yet today. I think that analogy is actually great for two other reasons. Like one, no matter how good the intern is or where they went to school or where else they interned, you need to check their work. And then the other is an intern is only as strong as the direction that you give them. And that's right. the same thing with I've seen people say like, hey, do a deck for me about developers who write Python. And like, that's not going to cut it. Prompt engineering is increasingly a very sophisticated skill that people need to build. And so I think that that analogy is great. Yeah. And the last one is probably like, don't forget that as a human, you can override it just because it like put out a paragraph or a sentence that the goal at the end of the day is like, if you're doing work, the work still needs to be as good as, if not better than what you would have done without it. But I've seen so many times where people who are generating these prompts, like they almost question themselves where they know that something is like inaccurate or it doesn't apply to your company that way. Like maybe you're a B2B company and the sentence that it wrote really only fits for a blog post if you're a D2C company you got to be smart enough as a human to override it and either regenerate it or take over the steering wheel and rewrite the paragraph. Right. As we roll out this AI, I think the key points here from both of us is definitely a way to be able to gain efficiency, definitely a way to be able to speed up things like brainstorming or research. Shifting gears a little bit, the Fed over the past few years has raised interest rates, 25 basis points, 50 basis points. And now we're in much different economic times. And in the startup world, and if you're PE or VC backed, that means that money is a little bit tighter. And everybody's also positioning against the recession that hasn't hit yet, but we're waiting for it every single day, according to the analysts. How do you think about that as a marketing leader? And what's the playbook for being able to navigate through harder economic times for you? Yeah, I think the last three years have been frenetic. The beginning of the pandemic in March and April of 2020, everyone was cutting costs out of extreme fear of what seemed to be a catastrophic economic event. And then it turned out to be more of a blip than anything. And we were in a period of extreme high growth. Everyone frothed the IPO market, massive capital injection. 
And that, because of the Fed and a number of other factors, has gone away. And I think everyone, including us, are now on a path to profitability. And profitability is what the market is rewarding. I think savvy and sophisticated marketers were always doing a fairly good job navigating this. Like they understood CAC, they understood which channels were most effective. And so when the pivot happened, they knew where they could cut without having to cut to the bone. And so we were able to make some cuts in that direction that were not as painful as they would have been had we been mismanaging the budget otherwise. But I think most importantly, this economic environment is so strange, and I don't think that it's going to normalize anytime soon. I think that what that means is that you need to look at your budget on at least monthly basis. Gone are the days of reevaluating the budget and your bench of vendors or consultants on an annual basis, and quarterly is no longer enough. You need to say, okay, based on this month of data, is our paid agency still performing? Are the changes to Google versus Bing, for example, having an impact on how we think about SEO and SEM? Is conferences or experiential still a viable channel for us given the pandemic or whatever else? And so I think that one sort of lesson that's universal for everyone is you have to look at your budget more regularly than you ever have before and really be willing to walk away from a channel if it's not performing. Yeah, I think that's spot on. The other areas too, in so much of our marketing budget, there's spend in terms of the pure spend. There's also like all the SaaS costs that add up before you know it. Like over the course of time, it's like one license here, three seats over here. And it's always shocking to me when that adds up and we haven't stayed on top of it just how much it adds up to and like how much that's an easy cut that doesn't impact us because it's essentially costs that we shouldn't have had in the budget entirely. The other one is going back to your vendors and saying, hey, we want to invest in a long-term relationship, but we need to cut. And like, what can we renegotiate this contract to ensure that we're able to have a long-term relationship? And like, there's always opportunities there as well. Yeah, I think two things in response to that. One, we were very fortunate to have an incredibly strong procurement leader. And so she is incredible at negotiating contracts in pursuit of exactly what you said, long-term mutual value, as opposed to get as much of a deal as we can now. And then no one uses this tool, but she looks at all the usage metrics. She makes the best deal she can. So becoming friends with your procurement department, if you're big enough to have one, I think is super important. The other is so much, we're a revenue oriented marketing team. And so we are responsible for about 40% of the company's new business. And a lot of our MarTech costs beyond the Marketos and the iterables and the Google Analytics of the world are in pursuit of pipeline or revenue generation. And oftentimes marketing and sales can be a bit siloed in tool adoption or evangelism for tool. Like, so every salesperson will say like, we need an ABM tool or we need a gifting platform or we need X, Y, and Z. And it's a silver bullet that's going to fix everything. Exactly. Or like I had the sales leader said, like I used this in my last company. It was incredible and it just doesn't fit in here. And so we, over the past year in particular, have partnered incredibly closely with sales leadership. And if a tool isn't performing, we say to the sales leaders, we do a bi-weekly call with them. Hey, this tool is in danger of being cut because your folks are not using it. So what right. we're going to do is we're going to set up another training so they know how to use it and why it's valuable, why we invested in the first place. And then they have 60 to 90 days to turn their behavior around. And if not, it's going away. And we've actually found six figures worth of savings by running that process over the past six to nine months. Yeah, that makes so much of a difference. 
I mean, the last major bucket is really headcount. And that's kind of the one that's touchy to be able to talk about because we love who we work with. As we're building teams, you get to know individuals as individuals. And oftentimes our really strong teams, you get to know individuals and their families as well. And the challenge there for marketing leaders is that cutting across the board isn't always the right answer. There might be a path where the right answer is actually to double down and invest in a particular area while taking that out of another area of a budget and just reevaluating that holistically. Because like you said, like the goal is long-term success and it doesn't make sense to do something short-term to be able to hit a number in a quarter that's going to set you off track for next year or it's going to set you off track for the long-term. And companies who are quick to fill like churned roles or employees, employees that voluntarily quit oftentimes are the ones that are stuck in the scenario where they end up having to do forced layoffs where the solution could have been not filling a role that voluntarily churned. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we run a process where we have, or I have a sense of if someone on the team were to leave, is this like a must fill tomorrow? Is this something we can wait on? Or is this something that we don't need to backfill for the rest of the fiscal year? So we work closely with the people team on running that process. I think the other sort of two things is one, as we were going through our budget exercise last year, we said to ourselves, we took a step back and we said, or do some of these roles and functions require a deep and very sophisticated understanding of our products and the culture of the company? Or is this something a permalancer or a freelancer or a consultant could do? And so content is a good example of that, as opposed to hiring, we have three great writers on the team now. But instead of building a bench of tons, we now have a handful of permalancers who we can go to and turn the dial up and down on should economic circumstances change or we have more of a need. And then I think that the other point is just constantly having conversations with your leaders and encouraging them to do the same with their employees on where their heads are at. I think it's naive to think that someone will work at a company forever, especially in a marketing function where people are often quick to move on and move forward and Mm -hmm. to say, hey, where do you want to go? What is endgame for you? Because that can also be a sort of way to guide through if a rift does have to happen to say, hey, this person actually was thinking about moving on. They wanted to go to business school or they weren't super happy in what they were doing anyways. And so I think to have those conversations both in wartime and peacetime is really important. And it's not always easy, but I think it differentiates strong leaders from weaker leaders. Yeah, absolutely. Over the course of your career, you've had an opportunity to be able to work with and on incredible brands. Teach for America, Yale University, Whole Foods Market, Pfizer, before everybody in the world knew who Pfizer was. As you think of brand, I think it's really easy for younger marketers to think brand is the logo, it's the typography, it's the color scheme. But like when you really think about building great brands, what are the things that come to mind first for you? That's a good, big question. I think it's what does a brand mean to a person in like a very tangible and real way? I think oftentimes marketing is way too aspirational. And back in PR, we always talked about the grandma test or the grandpa test, which is like, could you explain what you're doing or what you're marketing to a grandparent or a non-digital native, for example? And so I think that's like the core of the brand. And so one of my big jobs when I was at WPP was working for the film industry. And what I was tasked with was really dismantling the notion that it was just really overpaid actors and actresses and sequel machines. 
And really, it was an economic engine that was not only fueling the American economy and like the one area where no one could compete with us in terms mm -hmm. of our output, but also it was fueling like the local economies of New Orleans, of Atlanta, of Washington, D.C., of New York. And that was like a really fun project to work on because it was something that moved hearts and minds. And I think if you can sort of communicate the value proposition of a product or a brand in a way that's meaningful to people. And if they can see how a company or a brand is improving their lives, that's fun, exciting work. I think you like nailed on the key component right there is like how a brand is improving somebody's lives. And I think oftentimes a lot of marketers will get too wrapped up in the tactics and not the strategy because at its heart, regardless of what type of marketer you are, whether you're on the performance or the brand side or the startup versus the larger company at the end of the day great marketing is messaging and storytelling about how you're improving somebody's lives and like that is so much different i don't know that i can think of a single logo where i like look at the logo and i'm like oh yeah that's improving my life like that logo right there and when you take a look at like the best brands there's an agency out there that's called profit that works with a lot of these brands and they have a report that comes out every single year and it's one of the downloads every single year that i always look forward to and it's the relentlessly relevant brands and they actually go through in this report the components that make for a strong brand, but they're also ranking the brands and trending them. And so when you think about throughout the pandemic, a brand, and for anybody who's listening on the podcast, I'm sharing a copy of the report on screen here, a brand that just started making it onto this relevance index is a company called Calm. Calm has this meditation app where before the pandemic, it's not necessarily a brand that you would say this has global relevance, but in a post-pandemic world, it totally makes sense how calm and how they've come to life in the market is doing exactly what you're saying is like, how are you communicating your ability to be able to improve somebody's life? Yeah, for sure. Like it can be incremental also. Like I think a mistake that brands have is they take it too far. It's like, we're transforming your life because... Oreo cookie is the best cookie in the world. And sometimes <laughs> it's like Chewy, which you're showing on the screen right now. It makes it easier to have pet food delivered or to have pet care on demand or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about kind of like this big, huge thing, though, that doesn't necessarily get solved in one thing. You're not going to crank out a business card that it communicates this transformational life story. What do you think are like the first few steps for a company? Let's say a company is thinking about rebranding. What do you think are the first few steps to be able to point in the right direction? Well, I think one of them, it depends, of course, the industry, the product that's at the center of the work that you do, the size of the company, the resources you have. But I think one of the most important things and where I've seen people both succeed and fail is that marketing or whoever is tasked with doing this initiative has to take a truly cross-functional approach to making it happen. And so I've done so many rebrands where they've worked best is when you've talked to salespeople and you've said, hey, what do customers love about our products? And when you're talking to prospects, what are the misconceptions that they have about the company or the product? When you talk to a people team and you say, hey, why do people want to work here? Why do people have hesitations about taking jobs here? Where are we losing candidates to our competitors? And then to the product team saying like, what do you love about this product? Where do you see the product going in three to five years? And all of those inputs need to play into how a brand evolves or into any transformation work you're doing. And I think too often, marketing will sort of operate as an island and say whiteboard and put 10,000 post-it notes everywhere. We're going to contract this massive brand transformation agency and pay them 2 million bucks 
when really you can find a consultant or a small agency or run it internally and just ensure that the process relies on the internal expertise that you have and brings in external expertise through that lens. So I think that's really critical. That makes so much sense because in the rebrand, I think one of the biggest mistakes that you can make as a marketing leader is only thinking about the end user customer because the brand lives and breathes through your employment branding and your ability to be able to recruit employees all the way through to potentially even shareholders or investors and how they're perceiving the brand as well. And the other big mistake that you can make is building that out in a silo and unveiling it all at once. Because there are definitely brands that have done that where I'm trying to think of like the good example. There's been like a few companies over the past five years where they announce a new logo publicly and their customers literally rebel and they'll pull the logo back. But yet I can't think of one off of off the top of my head. It's always the case. Yeah. <laughs> but that's essentially what happens when you don't talk to your customers, you don't talk to other employees. There's so many powerful tools now to be able to do even quantitative research to be able to put a survey out to 2000 people. And you're literally talking about like two to $3 per completion. It's less than $5,000 to be able to market test that message and actually get a true feedback on something before it rolls out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you can tell that the marketing department was thinking about it so insularly. They were so inside their head because then when they try to explain it or when they try to quell some of the negative feedback they're getting, they're like, well, it's supposed to be like a peace sign, but the purple represents innovation. And everyone's like, what? You know, we like the last <laughs> logo. The last logo made sense. And so I think that feedback is certainly sound. I love Google for things like this because there, of course, there's a blog post on the 15 logos that rolled out that everybody hated. Look at this Gap logo that we have on the screen here. I definitely know the old one, but I don't think that's the new one that's currently being used. No, that's a problem. <laughs> so yeah, I think these are all really great points in terms of the rebranding considerations. And I think the last one is like, it doesn't have to be a full, complete, 100% change everything. It also can be done to live over time as well. What are the other pieces that you think marketers should be mindful for in terms of trends to be able to watch out for in the coming years? I think one that I spend a lot of time talking and thinking about, which relates to brand. So I think one of the big components of a brand transformation that are often neglected is the internal cascade. It's super important that your employees are behind the new brand, the new vision, the new values, the new mission, what have you, because they're your biggest stewards of the brand. They're the ones that are on the front lines, whether it's recruiting people to work with you, talking to customers or what have you. And I think that that's a core theme for marketing moving forward. So it's often framed in the media as like the tension that exists between employees and their employees. It was sort of messaged as at the peak of the pandemic or a couple of years ago, the employees had all of the power. They were negotiating outrageous salaries and they were driving mm -hmm. return to work policies. And now in this more constrained macroeconomic environment, there are all these reports and like the employers have all of the power. They're reducing salaries or cutting benefits. Everyone's scared they're gonna be laid off. And it's like, in my opinion, a sort of false narrative, but one that's also incredibly dangerous. Employers or leaders and employees and ICs have to really come together and work together in pursuit of the longevity of companies and those brands. And I think that for a long time, 
internal communications, and I'm using air quotations around it, was sort of regulated to a single employee or a stodgy corporate intranet that was celebrating birthdays and anniversaries and doing a generic happy pride month or what have you post. And it's really actually like an incredibly nuanced, very, very complex field that in my opinion, requires highly cross-functional collaboration between marketing, the people teams and other organizations. And uh, the employee voice is so loud. I mean, we've seen it move markets. We've seen it take companies down. We've seen it lift companies up. And I think that marketers, as they build their future go-to-market plans, as they scope out teams, as they invest in resources, really need to think about how they can continue to bring their employee base along in everything that they're doing. Yeah, the balance is so difficult. And companies are moving into these areas where in the past, companies didn't take stances. And so when you take a look at the scandal, whether it's what happened earlier this year with Bud Light or what is the ongoing battle between Disney and the state of Florida, these are fundamentally areas where 10 years ago, a decade ago, like you couldn't imagine these types of things happening. But post-pandemic and post the social movements and all of that, we're in a completely different world. There's difficult and challenging to be able to navigate and in some instances, might not have a clear right answer other than it continues to reinforce that it's so important to listen. So important to listen to your customers, so important to listen to your employees. Yeah, for sure, 100%. And then I think another theme, which is like, that's like nebulous and not easy and academic in some ways. I think the other one that everyone has to be prepared for is this increasingly cookie-less future and the decreasing efficacy of marketing campaigns and channels. Like how are people getting around that? How are people getting through it? And how are marketers continuing to deliver pipeline, but having conversations with finance departments around what spend and CAC looks like moving forward? That's a whole different actually topic, but let's talk a little bit about that. Like this cookie-less future and first-party data, like frame up for the audience here for anybody who hasn't heard about the cookie-less future that we're moving into, like exactly what it is and what's changing. Yeah, I mean, look, that's like a whole podcast. And so (laughs) the, the TLDR is that it's becoming increasingly difficult given the regulatory environment, especially in places like Brazil and the United Kingdom and now in states like California. It's becoming increasingly difficult to collect consumer data and serve hyper-targeted advertisements or retargeting or drip campaigns. And so people are doing more and more contextual advertising, like sponsoring newsletters, creating their own podcasts, for example, and creative workarounds like doing more field events or investing more in experiential or more one-to-one communication. And so we at Stack Overflow have been a little bit privy to this trend for a while because developers are among the most marketing adverse people out there. Like they have ad blockers in a pretty high percentage already. And now everyone else is starting to catch on. And so we've been doing a lot of contextual advertising. We've been fairly thoughtful about how we invest in events and experiences, but it's really challenging. And I think that you have to constantly experiment with regard to what works and what doesn't. A hundred percent. I think in the past, a lot of the marketing tactics to an extent, mediocre marketers got really lucky for a period of a few years because of the amount of data that companies like Google and Facebook Meta were collecting and also because of the strength of the tool in an extent like almost do the work for you and i think this is a pendulum swing actually moving back to a really great place where we're saying hey 
you should opt in to marketing that you're getting marketed to, but also the core of it is good content matters. Good experiences matter. And the focus should be on that versus allowing pinpoint marketing to happen in a way that people are not comfortable with. And B2B selling even got to the point where it's a little borderline creepy, like how much data is being sold tied to individual work email addresses and cell phones. And so many of us listening to this podcast, if you're a CMO today, everybody gets a high number of emails targeting exactly, exactly you. But I think for anybody who wants a primer to this, definitely take a look at Google's strategy going forward and how Google Analytics and how the Google search engine is changing and how they're building cohorts, because it is something that's important to understand. And it's Google's been pretty open about the time frame that they're making this transition so that nobody's caught off guard. But there definitely is a change. And you're right. There's definitely a full podcast episode on that that's got to come sometime in the future. Of course, I was going to say, and a marketing operations leader needs to speak to it also, because like a huge investment in marketing operations is required to get it right, because those fines are hefty, as we've seen play out relatively recently. Yeah, and it goes back to first party data is going to be king and building a direct relationship with your community in a secure manner, in a safe manner, and in a way that respects their privacy is going to be something that will never go away. Cliff, for those that want to follow you or connect with you, where's the best place to connect? You can connect with me on LinkedIn, just my name. And then I am on Twitter, although it's like not has remotely nothing to do with work, but feel free to follow along. <laughs> All right. So we got a work life over on LinkedIn. And if you want to follow what he's up to personally, check out his Twitter. Thank you so much for joining this episode of Destination CMO, wherever you're listening to this. Make sure to like and subscribe and follow. And we'll see you next time. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.